I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. to the Designer Maker Revolution podcast. Today on The Revolution, we've got Daniel Kavicki and Dale Broholm. Daniel's an author, historian, amazing thinker, as well as being vice provost. He's the professor of history, philosophy, and the social sciences at RISD. And Dale Broholm, as well as being an amazing furniture designer maker, is senior critic in the Department of Furniture Design, also at RISD. We three are going to talk about the Witness Tree project. Check out the Witness Tree on its Instagram page, which is Witness Tree Project, and also its website, witnesstreeproject.org. Big thanks to all you listening out there. Really appreciate that, as always, as well as the amazing feedback I've been getting. God, that's really rocking my boat. Big, big thanks to Neil Thomason who has answered the call regarding the audio quality. Hopefully, Neil and I can get the audio quality heaps better than it has been. I know some people have been having heaps of trouble with the telephone conversations. Man, I've spent so long trying to get it together, and we're going to get it completely sorted for everyone out there to make your listening experience the best it can possibly be. Hang in there with me. I've been spending heaps of time on it. Going to spend heaps more time on it. It's going to happen. Till then, please enjoy this podcast with Dale and Daniel. Dan Kaviki and Dale Broholm, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution podcast. Thank you, Adrian. We're going to talk together about the Witness Tree Project. The, you're running a Witness Tree Project in Australia, but you've run it in the States quite a number of times. Ten years now. Yeah. Can you tell us what the Witness Tree Project is? Well, do you want a little historic background? Yep. So probably 12 years ago, maybe a little more. I was introduced to Dan, and this is through our institution, the Rhode Island School of Design. I had participated in an earlier project, which was a collaboration between Brown University, which is a neighboring institution, and Rhode Island School of Design, where American elm tree had died on the campus, and it was a tree that was important to the institution. It was construction was going around it at the time, and they had tried to save it, and ultimately the disease, Dutch elm disease, took it. So they decided instead of the normal, just cut it up and chip it. They wanted to somehow integrate it into an educational process. So the Department of Furniture Design, where I teach, was approached by an individual, Richard Fishman, artist, educator up at Brown, and they asked that uh, we help craft a course of studies around that. That ran for three years or so. Uh, I participated in that for a little while. And What's the course of studies that you end up doing? Well, uh, in that case, uh, I was working in the studio making objects. Uh, with the, students? With students. Yeah. Yes, it's all about the students. Yeah. They had a variety of different individuals who were at the institution and outside, 
as guest artists mm-hmm. they're from outside. In the institutions, it was historians, scientists who would come in and talk to the students, investigate the tree in different ways, yeah, yeah. Uh, biologically, uh, historically, what did the tree, yeah. what, what was going on around the tree, the time of its and life. And what was the historical significance of the tree? Well, there really, it wasn't a great in the sense of how we investigated in our class. It was just present for about 200 years in the mm. time of uh, Providence. Clearly, Brown University loved the tree and they, they wanted the to tree. give it a bit of life Ab- back into it. Yeah. So what did the students make? Everything from functional objects to sculptural. Yeah. All over the board is interpretation of how mm. they saw fit in response to what they were doing in the class and then also just their all um, internal experiences. So, you know, it's inspirational, prompt-driven. It could be that way, too. That class ended, and then a couple of years later, I was on a family trip with another family, friends, down to Gettysburg National Military Battlefield down at Gettysburg, um, Pennsylvania. Battlefields for the Civil War. For the Civil War. In the United States. Yes. And the other couple, she is a noted military historian. Civil War is her specialty. She teaches at Boston University. He, at the time, was the regional historian for the National Park Service. And we were walking the battlefield at one point on this trip. And he was talking about the restoration of the battlefield and how they're trying to bring it back to the time of that event. They're going to have actors Well, that's not so much what they're trying to do, but they were trying to um, return the landscape. Yeah. I'm only like. joking about the actors. Oh. <laughs> they have that too. They, Unfortunately, they that. <laughs> that's a big thing. Oh, no, it'd be good to watch, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, God, it sometimes it becomes kind of a cartoon. Oh. Uh, it's just a little silly. Um, yeah, okay. But yeah. they um, were returning the landscape to its state, and obviously, a lot of things get changed. And I asked, well, what happens to the trees? In my interest as a maker, yeah. I was just kind of curious. And he said, I don't know, I'll look into it. So yeah. came back and said, well, we have this thing in the Park Service called the Witness Tree. It's not formally much more than a formality of, yes, we have witness trees. These are the trees that were witness trees. That's it. But with that information, started thinking about it. You know, went back to RISD and was hooked up with Dan in a potential course of studies. And at the time, I had been hired as a historian in the Department of History, Philosophy, and Social Sciences at RISD, mm. and had been, you know, doing the American History Survey and other courses about American culture and, and history. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good lecturer. I can, I can run a decent seminar, that kind of thing. But, you know, when you're teaching art students, sometimes their attention is focused in the studio uh, and not necessarily on their humanities and social mm. science classes. Mm. Uh, and so, well, okay, usually. <laughs> uh, so for me, this was a really exciting way to teach history. B- because we're focusing on a particular tree, we are uh, locating history in our surroundings, mm. like in a place. And also we are thinking about history through making, which for the students, you know, really uh, brings the subject to life uh, and really enlivens it. Also, when you're making art or making creative work, having a theme to work around can give you a limit which can inspire works that you wouldn't otherwise do. Absolutely. It's a good idea now just to say 
or describe what a witness tree actually is? The Park Service defines a witness tree. The, it's a tree that has been witnessed to significant historical cultural events mm. in our nation's history. Mm. I've got some quotes from the National Park Service in the States and one of them is, it's a biologically tenacious symbol of the past and it's a living connection to history. Yes. Park Service really doesn't do much more than that. It's not mm. that they have some kind of project or program that both works with the trees, has their interpretive staff talking to their audience necessarily about the tree and may come in sort of a casual conversation. It depends on the interpreter, mm. but it's, it, it is recognized. And so with that recognition within the organization, uh, individuals know about certain trees and that's sort of how we get mm. informed and think so about So the us. Witness Tree Project, though, needs a tree, doesn't it? It needs to have the material from that tree. So presumably these witness trees have fallen down or they've, they've died and they've got to be removed for safety reasons. Or Absolutely. That's sort of the course of events. Yeah. They have to come down for some reason. Yeah. So or the they come down on their own. They, and and yeah. the way it's worked is that the Park Service, when a tree falls through disease, lightning, mm. uh, or, or some removal program, they call us and they mm. let us know the trees that have come down and they ask us do we want the wood we talk and decide whether you know we can build a course the first question you ask is what's the tree yeah Yeah. meaning what type of tree what type of wood it is yeah now come on Dale (laughs) (laughs) if it's oak we're good we're all good to go a bit of walnut we like that Uh, yeah yeah I I would say that sort of the more offbeat the better yeah right and we've worked with elm several times because uh, of the dutch elm disease it's right, gonna right yeah. and it's a rare tree now because yeah. of the devastation yeah. in the 1930s but we've done mulberry we've mulberry done. that was great that was That'd great be cool. yeah. mulberry is very interesting tree uh, that was historic presidential historic site it was probably planted in the 1830s it probably died five six years ago the Park Service tries, if it's a significant tree, to propagate yeah. from the, the tree cuttings itself. In the case of this tree, they had to put us off a couple of years because the first round didn't work. Second time it took. And that in itself was kind of interesting. We visited where they're doing that. It was an extension of Harvard University. Yep. And spoke to the scientists working on that. Yeah, you've got a whole cross-disciplinary approach to this. Oh, there's a lot going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really and what nice. about the tree here in Adelaide? Well, this is a little different this time. We're there not, isn't a tree. We're not working with one particular tree. Yeah, right. And we're not working with the material from the tree. Uh-huh. Some of this logistics. Yeah. And that being the time that we need to process the lumber to bring it to the studio for the students to use is a minimum of a year's time. Ideally, it's two, three years' time. So the planning just wasn't going to work here. Otherwise, the wood is very green. Absolutely. You can totally work green wood, but as it dries out, it does deform in very unusual and unpredictable ways. And if the students are working in a traditional manner of joinery, Mm. that sort of thing, it becomes more problematic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, this was an opportunity to explore an idea that Dan and I had talked about previously and what the meaning of witness is mm. and how can we approach that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would actually dispute the notion that some trees are more significant than others mm. in a way, because I think that to the extent that history is an interpretation of the past and uh, an exploration of shared memory, all trees archive what's happened around them. Mm. 
Um, all trees are, are kind of um, center around which life happens. And however you define history, uh, you know, whether it's significant political events or aspects of daily life, trees are witnessing all of that. So mm. um, I think any tree can can function as a as a witness tree. Now, we've certainly worked with trees on sites that have been designated as, you know, historically significant. I think in Adelaide, what we're doing is, is really exploring the whole city and the whole past in, in this place and using trees as, a, as markers of that past. What's the past that you've investigated here in Adelaide? Well, we, we've done a lot of different things, but we're mainly focusing on settler and uh, Aboriginal perspectives of, mm. of the landscape. Yeah. We've talked about land rights. We've talked about uh, landmarks, the sort of memory scape uh, of, of the city. Mm. And we've uh, also talked about just generally history and, and place. Yeah. Uh, so we recently had a debate at the Adelaide uh, Botanic Gardens on how to restore uh, the landscape after a devastating bushfire. Yeah, which is really to, pertinent. To what yeah. extent do you yeah. bring it back to pre-fire conditions, yeah. or do you let it be, yeah. or do you, you know, focus on sustaining, you know, certain ecosystems to maintain biodiversity, and you know, lots of very interesting questions. And so we're we're coming at the intersection of uh, history and place uh, in many different ways. Yeah, in a in a real sense, right now there's history being made because the fires in Australia for anyone who's listening to this in a few years we're 2020 January and there's been fires burning in Australia since November last year and there's been devastation that uh, Australia hasn't seen at least in uh, written history and it's happening now and many many animal species have been lost bird species lizards insects we don't even know about probably there's a massive conversation that's going to be had here in Australia over the next couple of years about how that all unfolds mm -hmm. yeah what what do you do um, mm -hmm. and and we also brought I think in in the class we also brought an ethical aspect to that yeah. what should we do yeah. uh, and have and you got any answers not entirely. I mean, it was a debate, and it was yeah. interesting because the debate spilled over after the debate oh, ended, sure and did, the students were at lunch, you know, arguing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that there are pluses and minuses on, on both sides. Obviously, you want to maintain and rebuild communities and economies, yeah. um, you know, just, just for the good of people's lives. Yeah. But at the same time, there are broader, deeper questions about... Uh, the ecology of this place and, yeah. and what's happening right now. That is, is climate change going to be a force that will continue to create instability? And how do human beings, communities, governments adapt to that? It's a really interesting conversation. It's a very interesting time. It's a very emotional conversation. You know, it's interesting to watch the students prep for the debate uh -huh. and talk between themselves about the topic and how to approach it just from the standpoint of the, the different cultures. So it seemed like both groups were in agreement that we have to do something, but the place mm -hmm. of the point of where they're going to say to start that was the seemed at the end of the debate where they're kind of indifference. Yeah, I've got a lot of questions going around in my head and one of them is how does an artist or craftsperson interpret those sorts of ideas into a body of work which we can talk about 
And there's also other questions related to that. But actually, let's just, how, how are the students going to interpret what's interpret. going on? Well, I'm not sure if they're going to directly interpret that the debate topic into their work on the assignment they're working on currently. Yeah. They may do that in their second assignment. Yeah, because I actually picked out a detail. The project is much broader than just fires and right. our ecology. Yeah, right. and, and the second assignment's uh, broader in that they can interpret how they see fit. Mm. Certainly some students are really interested in the topic. Mm. Uh, there's a potential of a field trip to an area that has been burned for them to look at. We went up to the Cedars yep. uh, last week and yeah. looked at that landscape. And so they're starting to familiarize themselves with this area and start to get an understanding of what fire means. Yeah, the Cedars is in the Adelaide Hills. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But more broadly, I think it's important just to establish that in the course, there's a uh, there is an interesting back and forth uh, between studio and seminar that yeah. actually makes it quite unique. Yeah. Um, the students aren't simply following their inner muse when, when they're making. Certainly they're paying attention to aesthetics and they have their own preferences and they are making design decisions. But those decisions are really based on what they're learning uh, about history and theory and, and culture. And all of that's happening at the same time. So as students are debating or writing papers, they are also making. And we have found in past courses, and I think it's happening in this course, or at least will soon, that the kinds of decisions that one makes in studio can influence the way one writes and thinks in the seminar. And then the way one writes and thinks in the seminar certainly influences the yeah. kinds of decisions you, you make as you're approaching a, a topic yeah, uh, yeah. In, in studio. So, it, you know, in, in, at our institution, making and uh, writing, so to speak, uh, or the humanities and uh, design are in the same school, but they're kind of separate. Mm. Uh, that is, you know, the, we have majors in uh, furniture design and illustration and photography and architecture and so on. And then we have courses in history, philosophy, uh, literature, art history, that kind of thing. And it's really up to the students to bring those things together. Like if, through their path, through their educational path, they find the connections. What this course does, though, is make those connections explicit. Mm. We, the course is structured, so you have to bring those things together. Mm. And uh, I think because of that, the kind of the, the work we see is very different. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, I, I view the objects that are made in studio, and this is my perspective, I view the objects made in studio as history papers in 3D. Mm. Right? Yeah, well. You know, and, and they... They're explaining things, they're telling stories, they are exploring topics and issues at, at great depth, but they're doing that, you know, through design. Mm. Um, so in a non-traditional manner that a historian would expect. Yeah. And so for historians, it's actually mm. very transformative because, you know, I, I understand the issues from a literary perspective, that is mm. through, through books and through reading and, and theory, but to see the objects actually opens up new ways of thinking about the past. Mm. And because an artwork is inherently interpretive and can be interpreted by the viewer, people can see history in a new way or even just Absolutely. themes in a new way, see the world in a new way, and that's 
brilliant. No, there's there's no question about that. And mm-hmm. we have had the Park Service staff uh, respond to the students' objects in ways that are helpful to their work. Yeah. Uh, they uh, really appreciate the fact that the students are assisting them in interpretation. Usually when a class is being run at the end of the class, the objects are curated and then sent back to the site for a public exhibition. How cool is that? Yeah, and it's really great because the students then have an engagement with an audience that they normally wouldn't be talking to. But also the Park Service has a chance to bring in a new audience to see their site. And the lenses are changing, and it's really kind of fundamentally important for all the parties involved because it means that you're not just with this set perspective yeah and look where can people see there's a website there is a website org. so people can look at that and Uh, there's plenty of images of made works and a lot more information about the witness tree project and and how it's gone about and where the trees come from Mm -hmm. and And we just set up Last night, actually, our uh, Witness Tree Instagram account, where we are hey. posting photos from our Australian experience. And, and what's that called? What's the Witness hint? Tree Project? Witness all one Tree word. Project, fantastic. Yeah. We resurrected it. <laughs> yeah, we had set up a. Actually, we had set up an Instagram account. Somebody's got to administer these things. Yeah, I mean, no, it's not just set up an account. You got to bloody go and do it. We set it up like four years ago, <laughs> and you know, life yeah. got in the way, and yeah, so yeah. we have Moved revived on. it. Yes. Yeah. So when you do your own personal Instagram accounts, you can just jump over there yeah. once a week or something. Exactly. The outcomes of the Witness Tree program are tangible because pieces are made, and we just talked about that exhibitions are held. There's clearly unseen benefits for the participants. You talked about the National Park Service. but For the students, it's another arrow in their design quiver. Mm. And, you know, for the students when they're working, a lot of it is uh, internal inspiration. I want to make this because this dance in the inner muse is speaking to them. They're going to create something. In studio and classes, maybe there's a prompt. You have to make this. But it is still somewhat driven by the, the need to make on the, in a very uh, personal level. This hopefully is showing that, that when they move out into their professional life and they're practicing, that they can draw upon research in a way that is historic, that they may not normally gravitate towards as a way of finding design solutions to uh, problems that are either set before them by an employer, a client, or if they're just trying to work on a problem that they're interested in just because it's of their interest. Mm -hmm. So it just broadens, hopefully it broadens their horizon as they move into their professional lives. Mm -hmm. I've personally found history and stories in history in my work really important. In fact, I've based whole bodies of work around history, but even in public work commissions, the history of the locality where that public work is going to go is the first place where you go when you're practising as a designer or an artist and it doesn't matter what you're going to make, you're looking at the history, Mm -hmm. reading that little history book, even if it's a a place you couldn't even imagine would have any history. For me, I think the the best art is art that is just widely contextualized. You may not see it in the piece, but the artist has approached it from a a very Mm. wide perspective and then honed into Mm. uh, whatever they are they are making you know and uh, I mean in various um, you know artists have said you have to fill your bucket basically you have to 
almost indiscriminately uh, read, watch things, be aware of the world around you, and really take it all in because you never know how those experiences are going to influence your art. If you're just focused on what you know, you're going to hit a dead end really quickly. Or you're just going to copy what you've seen. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. maybe make a lot of money, and that's great, but... <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> or maybe not. Right. No, but I think the best art, of course, is, I mean, it's not industrial. It's not just about repetition. It's... Yeah. It's exploration. Yeah, and interpreting. And mm-hmm. Who decides what a witness tree is? Well, I think that goes back to what I was saying. I mean, you know, if I were deciding, every tree is a witness tree. Uh, and some trees are, are more interesting than others in terms of trying to figure out what the tree witnessed. But there is a I, I would disagree with that. And the only reason I would disagree with that becomes the interpretation of a witness tree becomes somewhat generic. And I think in the age of Wikipedia, which everybody can be an authority or a critic or a historian, uh, I like the fact that it has to have some kind of significance. So the willow growing in the field, yeah, maybe something important happened there. A lot of things important happen everywhere. And I think that it's something that becomes much more special for me, falls into the categorization of this is a witness tree. So a tree in a park, yeah, they witnessed a lot of kids playing there through the decades, and maybe there are picnics, and maybe there was But the a history parade. of children's play is so fascinating, oh, and you can yeah. develop a whole course around that. I mean, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> that's true. That's true hand thought there. I'm so narrow-minded, I can't believe it. <laughs> no, I take your point. And so, obviously, when we get calls, one of the things we're doing is we're so always thinking about... We're assessing it. Can we tell a story right can this tree help us to tell stories that are meaningful enough to you know sustain a semester-long class for instance absolutely so we were recently approached by a site down in the washington dc area this is a canal site so early industrial revolution site and we talked a little about it and you know there's probably not enough to merit us going into it because of the investment of the students' time, our time, uh, the costs involved. You really need to craft something as your structure, your syllabus that's going to be engaging and interesting for the students. And that is something that has shifted over the 10 years we've been running the class. We understand that their interests grow and are different from one class to another, so we need to be cognizant of that. I think one of the other things that's interesting is the ways in which over 10 years that, that we've been teaching this course, you know, we start to see repetition of the kinds of trees that are recommended to us. For instance, mm-hmm. we've done many presidential historic sites, mm-hmm. either presidential homesteads or you know memorial sites and that kind of thing. And so obviously in the U.S., those are marked as significant historical sites. And I think we're at the point where we're trying to look for something different. We don't want to do another Theodore Roosevelt site or mm. George Washington site. We want to do something else and, and look at other other histories. Mm. Unless it's like a really nice walnut and that might skew it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you just want the wood as well. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that, this, this is for them, this is for me. Now, it's more um, what is of interest to the students at the time. And we work with a site down outside of Baltimore, Maryland, which at the time of the house's 
construction, which was 1790. It was purported to be the largest private house in America. That's kind of interesting. It was a place of material culture and wealth. The untold story with the Park Service, who were, they were starting to tell the story, was uh, who were all the people who made that happen? It was a slave plantation. Mm. Students were really interested in that. Mm. And we look at those kind of themes and how they percolate up to what they'll they'll grab onto. And they did in that case. If there's stories that are, say, wrapped around the Industrial Revolution, that might be something that's really interesting to some of them, but yeah. I think there's gonna be something else for them to grab onto or we'll I lose think them. the Industrial Revolution is not gonna be anywhere near as contentious. The Industrial Revolution is something that you can get into and be interested in, but the notions of slavery and how that's panned out in a culture like the States or anywhere around the world, it's ongoing still. Mm-hmm. You know, there's- Absolutely. And you can talk about a hell of a lot more. It is the human condition that you start talking about then, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's not just, oh, look at how good the engineering was back then, right. which is a kind of much more limited scope of discussion. Yeah. Although, I mean, I think I think I could certainly connect industrialization to other kinds of mm. suffering and oppression and 100%. so on, right? Obviously. So and colonization. And, and all, all that, oh, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. So it's really interesting for me because the ways in which... Mm, the word arbor, right, which is related to tree, also means axis. It also means a kind of center, a spindle. Yeah. And I always think of a tree as a kind of axis around which uh, stories revolve. And mm. so you can move outward from a tree actually in all directions and connect things up in, in very interesting ways. Yeah. And that's kind of my job in, in the course. Yeah. I need to contain it sometimes because I'll just I'll just go in all directions at once uh, and pretty far out uh, where the students are just their heads are spinning and they're like, who is this guy? What is he talking about? But it is for me a really interesting way to to, to both anchor and then expand the practice of history. It's like you're an ideas finder. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, and, and I, I have not come up short. You know, I respectfully disagree. I can pick any tree and I can I can yeah, build yeah. something around it, so. Yeah, I think finding <laughs> ideas is a bit of a practice too. If you do it more, you, yeah, it becomes I easier. Yeah, I suppose. And that's a design skill in itself. You're designing stories. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never thought of it that way, but I suppose it is. I mean, one of the interesting things for me, too, is that I've learned a lot about design through this course. I was not a designer. I actually didn't have you know, any kind of training um, in design before coming to Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, and I, uh, at least initially, saw my role uh, narrowly as, you know, as someone who was just providing humanities education. Um, general education uh, for for the students. But in doing this course, I think I've really realized the ways in which, yes, I am a designer. And actually, I'm quite creative a, as uh, an historian. And and I think all historians are, uh, but they don't quite think of it in that way it's because it's scientific and objective and, mm-hmm. and true. And then, you know, if you're just following professional prescriptions, you may not think of yourself in, that, in those terms. A historian needs so. to make sure facts are in place. Sure. You can't Otherwise, just make it all up. I mean, well, you know. some, some do. Well, f- fair enough. Yes, fair enough. Yeah. Yes. But a historian <laughs> that you'd want to be, you wouldn't. You'd want to make sure it fits with clients. We have to, we put it this way, we have to have some shared basis for investigation and conversation. Mm-hmm. 
And if it is all made up, if individuals are just coming in and saying, this happened, that happened, then we don't have a shared basis of No, you can't really use that, can you? It's okay to say, well, in 1644, this happened in this particular location. But in terms of what the relevance to that is to somebody now is only really in relation to the human condition and, mm-hmm. and whether or not you can learn from that perhaps or if you can be inspired by something or, you know, mm-hmm. say you really need to have stories. The stories are important. Yeah. And the stories always pertain to what's going on in the present. So the way we think yeah. about the past is always shaped by what's happening in, in yeah. the present. That's why that's why we do history and because it just keeps changing, because the present keeps changing. In terms of, uh, you talked about the differences over the 10 years that you've been doing the project. What about between the States and Australia? So I just want to backtrack just quickly. How many students from the States are here? We have 12 students from RISD. And there are eight students from uni. Yeah, and this is an elective. Yes, it is. So this is an elective, it is an intensive. Yeah. So it is running for three weeks. And you're working really super hard and you've got three weeks and after that. And so do you see a difference in the Australian thinking process and the North American thinking process or is it? Uh, It's kind of of early to say. We've only been running this for a little over a week now. I see the uni students really engaged. They're very capable and excited about what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. they have jumped in. Mm-hmm. They're starting to create their first objects mm-hmm. and all excited. So the differences haven't really played out in my mind yet. What do you think, Dan? I would say that there is a, a local knowledge that the sure. UniSA students bring to the course, uh, that's you know uh, formed from their experiences but here. Students in RISD bring the same local knowledge, you know. For they do, but Australia. not local knowledge of South Australia. The, not no, not, not know, local knowledge of Adelaide, right? No. So th- there's a little bit of hesitancy to to, to make statements about. Yeah. Uh, Adelaidean culture. The American yeah. students don't know that. No, they couldn't know that. So there's just a little bit of a dynamic there in, in yeah. uh, discussion. Where I'm coming from with this is that Australia's a developed Western nation. North America's a developed Western country, but do have different cultures. And I'm just wondering, in your two minds, how much is there an overlap? Mm. How much is there a... Well, it's a little difficult for me to say because the makeup of our students from RISD international. Okay. So we have students from China. We have students from a student, I believe, that has some heritage in South America. So they're all British bringing cross-cultural notions. But I'm actually asking you two individually. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, people sure love cricket here. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get it, do you? <laughs> Why the hell would somebody watch people playing cricket? I mean, why would you? Oh, my God. I actually found it uh, a a wonderfully um, animating intellectual exercise to figure out what was going on. And you know what the problem is for us? I know this is totally off topic, but the problem for us is that we constantly refer back to baseball. Because you have fielders and and ballers or pitchers and then hitters, but uh, you know, but it doesn't match. So you're you're using this framework that actually is not the right one. And uh, that was great. That was a good mind exercise because I had to keep going. No, don't refer to baseball. Don't refer to baseball. Uh, and just try to experience the game. Did you figure, go and see one? Figure out the yeah, rules. we did. did yeah, you? we did. Yeah, 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 yeah. saw the strikers. So but tough. there's a similarity. It's dreadfully boring, and that's that's <laughs> well, the case okay. with baseball I, too. I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I do. 
<laughs> I'm one of those that doesn't like cricket. I mean, from an intellectual perspective, maybe. Okay, why are people interested in cricket? That'd be something you one could get game. involved in. Yeah. But I, I did that for one game. You know, talk to me at game 20, and I might feel differently. So you need to understand that Mr. Excitement here, one of his field of research, was fandom. Yeah. So being in the Oval, watching it... Yeah. Happy man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Those, the, those were my people. And <laughs> yeah. I, I understood, you know, I got all the colors and the cheering, yeah. and the, there was yeah. a crowd with signs. And, and who was who the, uh, there's one um, Rashad baller. Um, was it Rashid, Rashad? They're very excited. Or Khan. Yes, right. They're very excited about him. Right, clearly yeah. a star. Okay. Uh, and and he, he and he, he varied up his pitching. Sometimes he would run, yeah. you know, towards the, the yeah. line, and then other times he'd kind of just, you know, casually. I mean, very interesting. The similarities between baseball yeah. and cricket is the strategy involved, especially on the longer game. So the strikers play this uh, weird form of cricket, which purists hate because it only goes for like 20 overs. Which is so it's really short, you know, yeah. two hours or three hours, the game's right. over, it's yeah. done. But like a normal cricket game goes for five days, yes. yeah. yeah. And like, imagine sitting down watching that for five days. I don't get it personally, but whatever, like, but whatever the, rocks but, your boat. But the passion and commitment required to follow it for five days, and it's all about actually, the strategy, yeah, it is yeah, about yeah, it's yeah. a long game, yeah. Players are playing a long game, and there's a whole lot of stuff that goes down yeah. in that long game that, you know, you've got to plan what happens. The stuff yeah. that happens on day five is going to be set up from day one. And baseball is similar to that. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's one difference <laughs> that, that at least I've, I've noticed. The other one, and, and this, this maybe pertains a little bit more closely to the, uh, the Witness Tree Project course, is that there is... And, and this may sound odd to, to some of your listeners, but I think there's a, a, a greater openness or at least presence of uh, Aboriginal culture and cultural issues here than in the States. We're talking about uh, Native American cultures. I find that really surprising. Yeah, and I, I thought you might, I, because uh, in, in the States, there isn't a lot of public discussion about Native American culture, land rights, and so on. There will be news stories on occasion, but it's not, it's not that the United States government is consulting Native American elders in any way about anything. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas here, and I may be wrong, but here there seems to be at least a greater record recently, recently, of consultation or at least some kind of acknowledgement and, yeah. and that that kind of thing. I'd uh, truly hope that that's the case. Mm. We'd have to get somebody who knows yeah, no, like a, an original person that's been involved in the politics and then mm -hmm. get them to confirm how it's all going. But It's interesting to look at the two dominant cultures' response to the indigenous cultures and the presence of recognition of Aboriginal culture here is noted because I don't see that in the States. And it seems that there, there is some kind of shifting in it here towards bringing and integrating their knowledge base into the dominant culture and, and respecting it. How long does that take? What does that mean? There's a lot of signage. There's a lot of uh, acknowledgement and, say, opening of ceremonies, those sort of things. How much deeper does that go is my question. Mm. At times, I feel like in the States, if we were doing that, it would just be lip service because the government currently and in past administrations really don't have this on their radar at all. They don't care. Mm. 
There might be some state organizations, but on the federal side, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is the management group in the national government, uh, they're doing nothing. So it's interesting to look at it here and it seems like more, more is going. There seems to be some accounting. But as I said, that also may be recent. I mean, you know, and... Uh, seems like the past 40 yeah. years. Yeah. It's not a long, long time. Yeah. I would say it'd be 40. I think it'd be a bit more recent. Certainly in the last 20 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And more than 20. Yeah. Well, 1970s, it seemed like there's that acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And then... Prior to 1970, I don't know the exact date, early 1970s, Aboriginal people weren't even citizens of Australia. Right. Right. And they certainly couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. And there was a referendum... Amazingly, you'd need a referendum, but anyway, mm-hmm. there was one, and uh, from that time on, they were citizens and they could vote. Well, people of Aboriginal and Islander, Torres Strait Islander descent. Yeah, so I mean, that's just another in- impression, and it also may be that we are, are focused particularly on readings that are discussing these issues, mm. but you know, it's just, it's, it's just another interesting, interesting difference. Trying to think of, of any others. Are there differences, Dale, in terms of uh, that you see in terms of education, how things are set up, that that kind of thing, the the infrastructure? It seems like the UniSA, you know, School of Architecture and Art seems like well, our. I think schools. you'd probably find it very similar. Mm. It'd be a familiar setup. Mm-hmm. I think to some degree, I think the intensity of the art school experience, RISD, is unique. And so it's much more intensive. And that's not to say any of the individuals are more committed or less committed. I I get the impression that the studio availability and time to make is maybe a little bit more compressed or limited for the UniSA students. And that's probably because the scope of their educational demands are higher and they're not as studio intensive. It seems like the facilities are really nice. Very, very complete. But I get the impression, just talking to some of the technicians in those particular studios, that the students are kind of, they're, they're looking at sort of a broadcast exposure to different types of technologies and making. And they are going from one studio to another studio, dipping the toe, so to speak, and then they just have to move on. Mm. While at RISD, it's a much more immersive experience. Mm. I think that might be uh, specific to UniSA. There are different sorts of courses interstate that you could be a little bit more focused, but mostly even those courses are dropping off the radar too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, one of the things RISD students are known for is their intensity. They work day and night. They so they should. Well, fair enough. Uh, but you know, you sleep. Can, you you can Who walk around. You can walk around the campus at one, two a.m. and the place is lit up because yeah, everybody's yeah. in studio. Yeah, you know, yeah. trying to finalize their their projects yeah, or yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever they're working on. And yeah. it's we're, we're trying to pay attention, uh, pay more attention to health yeah, okay. <laughs> at RISD, health and wellness, and yeah, sort yeah, of help yeah. the students understand, like you know, uh, spending another three hours on that, you know, one uh, design decision might not yield the best outcome, and maybe you just need to go get some sleep and take okay. a break. So my experience was like what you've just described, mm-hmm. and yeah. I loved it to pieces, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it any other way, yeah. but I wouldn't do it for the rest of my life either. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, exactly. At, well, at some point, yeah. you collapse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've got to make it sustainable. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm just going to talk about witness trees in Australia. There aren't any witness trees in Australia because in Australia they're called significant trees, 
And there is a National Register of Significant Trees done by the National Trust, groups of national trusts, and there's about 2,500 of them. Most of them are significant trees just because of their size, but there are ones that are culturally and nationally significant. One of them is the Proclamation Tree in Glenelg, which is uh, the tree where some big-ass white dude came and decided that South Australia was now a British colony back in the day, like you do when you're a British colonist. It's now made of cement, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> Hasn't it been cemented so, because it was degrading? To I think somebody tried to put it on fire as well. Ah, excellent. All right. Yeah. All right, well... Anyway, so that, that's a witness tree in Australia. You can love it or hate it, depending on which side of the fence you come from. There, there's um, the pine tree on the Lone Pine Ridge in Gallipoli, which you two being from the States may not know how significant the word Gallipoli here is here in Australia. You, may, you have kind of probably heard it, but Gallipoli was the site of a battle in Turkey in World War One, where lots of Australians and New Zealanders were slaughtered and got nowhere in fact, they landed on the completely wrong beach and blah, 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 blah. And they were, it was a changing point in an Australian consciousness in a lot of ways. We became Australians as opposed to a British colony at that point in World War One. But anyway, there was this lone pine on a ridge. It was called Lone Pine Ridge. That tree was destroyed in that battle, but the seeds were collected and they've been grown in Geelong. And just talking about witness trees in Europe, I have uh, interviewed a guy called Wilfried Kalif, and he cuts down trees locally in Netherlands and he's found many many bullets and hand grenades that from the World War II that are still alive so you've got to be super careful when you cut down a tree in Europe and there's parts of the Somme in France that won't be accessible to anybody for another two or three hundred years because of the massive artillery barrages in World War One. check that out how many witness trees are left from that? Absolutely nothing because it's a it was a mud pit, but there will be heaps of trees there now because you can't actually go there. We got anything else to talk about with witness trees? I don't think so. I think, I think, I think we covered it pretty much. The project is ongoing. Mm, check the students it out. are starting to you know finish their their projects and they'll be on display soon. Yeah. I guess it's at the, uh, the uh, Museum of Economic, Economic Botany. Botany. <clears throat> Museum of Economic Botany here at the Botanic Gardens here in Adelaide. And I'm sure that uh, witnesstree.org, witnesstree.org will have lots of images. Instagram would be best because that's going to be immediate. Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome. Bloody good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Dale. Now you know all about the Witness Tree Project. Check it out, witnesstreeproject.org. And also on the Instagram page, which is Witness Tree Project, or one word. You can find me at all the normal places, make at designermakerrevolution.com, as well as on Instagram sometimes, and also Facebook sometimes. Instagram handles, there's adrianpotter.designermaker and also designermakerrevolution. Very good. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. See you next time. Bye.